what were you doing in June of 2021? I was losing my damn mind, frankly, in the midpoint of year two of our now familiar pandemic hellscape. And at that time, my guest today released the book that we'll be discussing today. I downloaded the audiobook to listen to after noticing this person around the traps on Instagram, thinking, oh, yeah, it's pretty good value. And I'd read an extract, I think, by The Guardian um, that was very sexually interesting. And I remember that day so vividly. I'd driven from Casamay to Croydon, of all places, to get a tattoo at White Rabbit Studio, and I needed something to hold my attention on the long drive home. Um, when I was off my chops on all those endorphins. And this really fit the bill. It's an absolute ripper. And we're going to be talking about launching in an unlaunchable time and the diehard urge to push beyond the ordinary human experience. And who knows what else with Jenny Valentish, author of Everything Harder Than Everyone Else. Welcome to Slow Reader, Jenny. Thank you for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, you're just up the road and around the mulberry bush from me and this is my weird shut-in immunocompromised hobby. So we're meeting on Zoom um, and that's all I'll say about the sound. So fingers crossed. Um, can you tell us about the premise of the book? Yeah, well, fittingly, as you say, it is about people who are high on endorphins. Um, <laughs> it is. Each chapter is about a different kind of extreme pursuit like um you know bodybuilding deathmatch wrestling bare knuckle boxing flesh hook suspension but it's not like a gawking oh what are these people doing you know it's um mm. i really wanted to know what was fueling people who who do these things not outliers at it what was fueling them to be able to push through pain um where other people would bulk and why are they doing these things that are often imbued, imbued with bravado or you know suggest that there's something to prove um and i found that each kind of pursuit that i profiled had a tendency to attract people who had different reasons for doing it so just i'll just mm. give you one example mm. so um bodybuilding can often attract people who had very chaotic upbringings like inconsistent parenting that kind of thing they never know what to expect next and maybe that they moved into a bit of a chaotic, you know, youth as well. They bounced around town, all that kind of thing. But then eventually they find this pursuit which offers huge relief in its structure. You know, it's so structured. It's structured in terms of you go to the gym and you have to do these sets and reps and count them and all this kind of thing. It's structured in terms of a diet. Um, and literally every part of your day is going to be filled with little Tupperware containers or counting things. So mm, control. Beautiful. Love it. Control that you can hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. I actually appreciate that the older I get. Definitely I was <laughs> more careless when I was younger. And now I'm like, oh God, yeah, let me write down in my little notebook how many weights <laughs> I've done today. Oh, where's my whiteboard? <laughs> There, there's so much happening in the book like as you said there's there's the sheer volume of characters almost of protagonists even though it's non-fiction and I feel like I don't know I'm at this great party and no one's boring can you can you talk a bit about the process of finding all of these people and did you have to decide who would be in the book were there any that you left out for volume purposes I mean they had to be they weren't necessarily top of their field uh, there, I did have, um, I did interview um, Kayla Harrison, who's won two Olympic gold medals in judo and is now kind of top of her game at MMA, but she was kind of an exception. 
Um, generally, I needed to speak to people who had given a lot of thought to why it is they do what they do and were prepared to talk about it because athletes are notoriously closed and guarded around journalists, whether they are just so focused on what it is that they do that they don't really have time for that kind of nonsense, or if it's more like they have gatekeepers who are, you know, trying to keep them in the zone. Mm. Um, it's hard to get good access to people and then have them prepared to speak. So I had to find people who were quite out there and had given it a lot of thought. So, I mean, a good place to start was, I'm a little bit entrenched in the Melbourne wrestling scene. So I knew exactly who to speak to there. Somebody who was super eloquent. Crackerjack the mad bastard, his name is. <laughs> um, and then I also looked for people who'd written memoirs because that's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? That yeah, right. They do a lot of thought. Um, so yeah. I think the first interviewee was Charlie Engel, who's the 60-year-old ultra runner who used to be a crack addict. Um, and he's just the nicest dude and so generous with his insights. So he gave me a lot of... Uh, information about the kind of crossover between addiction and long distance running which is definitely a thing mm. there's a lot of people who grow from one to the other yeah right well I asked you ahead of time to choose a passage I wouldn't have liked that job myself because there's so many to pick from but um which one have you chosen and can you tell us about why well obviously I've chosen with me in it oh good <laughs> <laughs> um so, yeah, another thing about these people in the book is they often are driven by, not all of them, but they're often driven by ego as well. And I could relate to that. Um, maybe a big, fragile ego. Um, and it's kind of necessary for them to actually be able to continue to do what they do. Mm. So my ego showed itself when I decided to write my own sporting quest into the book, um, which was having uh, a live streamed Muay Thai kickboxing fight. And so I thought I'd read you a bit of the end of the book, spoiler alert which kind of ties things up and also explains why I was kind of interested in the topic. Yeah, right. All right. In case it wasn't obvious, the title of this book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, has a double meaning. Some people are destined to make their lives more difficult in the quest to prove themselves. And I've identified, empathised, and sometimes winced in recognition when talking to those I met while writing it. So it shouldn't be surprising that their words of caution in this chapter would become a personal prophecy. The same week that I received the final proofs of this book, I have my first amateur fight under the grand chandeliers of the Melbourne Pavilion. I've been working up to this moment for two years, but curiously, I'm disengaged from the screaming of the crowd, which is by now quite revved up after 20 bouts of boxing, seven of kickboxing, and an unknown quantity of beer. The deeply creepy Benny Mardone's song, Into the Night, has been assigned to me as I walk to the ring. She's just 16 years old, a bit weird. And above that, I hear a lone cheer from a friend in the peanut gallery. As soon as the bell sounds, my opponent go at it, hammer and tongs and kitchen sink. At one point in the third round, there's a boisterous crowd response when I'm punched to the canvas. This sort of humiliation had been my worst fear, but the joyous baying only registers abstractly. There's a job to do. And my sole focus is on bouncing back up for an eight count and then making her pay. So if that was the biggest shame job I could dream up, the fear has been declawed. Immediately after the fight, I'm on an almighty high despite getting the silver medal, as in I lost. There are photos, hugs and congratulations, then a sprint for last orders. 
I crash an hour later, halfway through my cocktail and dinner, and the come down persists for a week. It's not because I didn't win or because of the bruises and the headache. It's because I did the thing I set out to do, and now it is done. I've fallen into the trap of losing purpose and identity by completing not just the fight, but also the book that I had come to embody. That's what you call a home goal. Oh, yeah. I Yeah, I loved that part of this book. It was that really sweet spot of, um, I don't know, it feels like integration of all the ideas that you've kind of hinted at along the way. Um, Deconstructing the urges that people have was a focus in that I really enjoyed and I related to so deeply as well, primal urges, reactions, outrunning what's too awful to understand about yourself sometimes. Um, and I guess for context, I'm, I'm a person who went too hard and I short-circuited my brain, my nervous system, my physical body, and I'm now disabled from about the age of how old was I, 25, um, of chronic pain. And I know that if I was still able-bodied, I'd be kicking the bejesus out of a punching bag or or working through the levels of whatever martial arts I ended up doing. Actually, I'd forgotten this. I, I started karate <laughs> about a month before I got sick because I was just like, what? What else can I do? Let's let's have at it. Um, and I felt so unstoppable and limitless. And it never would have been enough. None, nothing would have been enough. No level of fitness achievement in any field. And I would have done anything to outrun what it was that I really needed to get to. So the deconstruction of those urges to go hard. You say these are your people. What has the response from readers been? Have have your people been the ones reading it as well? Yeah, um, actually, it's it's had a broader appeal than that, which is good. Oh, um, yeah, I think people can relate to sort of the essence of it, which is how do we fix what ails us in novel ways? Mm. I mean, actually, I mean, you're talking about how you had those same kind of desires, but you, the solution you come up with, really, your career, the way it turned out, has been one of connection, which yeah. is probably the much healthier option, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, but I'm addicted to it. I, I yeah. can't get enough. I can't get enough. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, okay. yeah, that, that's kind of my point in this book is... Um, it's not a bad thing to do something to extremes necessarily. Like we're trying to, we're trying to correct ourselves all the time and it just heaps on so much extra stress and self-flagellation, yeah. you know? Okay. So somebody doing bare knuckle boxing, for instance, isn't the healthiest thing you could do for your life and your, you know, your brain health and that kind of thing. However, the person I interviewed prior to finding this was in and out of jail, you know, mm. that's an extreme example, but People, people I interviewed have just found ways that are productive and that they love and find joy in to um, kind of work with their natural sort of agitation and maybe underlying distress. And I think that's great and it should be celebrated. Mm, definitely. There's, there's a lot of talk about um, the wounded child in your book. Like you describe a trifecta of lack of respect, abandonment and shame. Ding, 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 click the whole set and away you go, ready to fight one way or another. Um, but I really loved, I loved the descriptions of you as a child and then as an adult in your first fight. They're so evocative. And what came across is you found this sort of piece. It all came together um, for you as well as the reader 
and the people that you interview, there's this beautiful simpatico, the integration of the of the ride. And, and I don't know, it just felt like this, oh, yeah, okay. And, and in a way talking about how this is a story that anyone can really place on themselves and reflect into their own, I hate the word journey, but I can't think of another one right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it must have been amazing for you to to get to that sweet spot. Did you know that that spot when you started out or did you find it through writing it? Do you mean the sweet spot from when I started fighting? I mean, I mean the bit towards it's sort of near that passage that you read where where all of the stories have come together to this this focal point. I think I, well, I mean, I always knew because I, I am a bit fiendish with structure in books. I always, <laughs> so I always knew it was going to culminate in yeah. me having a fight. And whether I won or lost, I could extract something from that. Yeah. Um, originally, it was hopefully going to be in Thailand and then the pandemic got in the way. Mm. But anyway, so the whole idea was that I would have my own realisations as we go through. I mean, it's it's all kind of leaf falls out, you know, there are no accidents really. Um, uh, and I knew that I had things in common with these interviewees in terms of things like something to prove, ego, bravado, and so I could bring that out of myself to comedic effect. <laughs> and so I, I left my story to quite near the end so that it's like, ah, and look, the person telling your story has these things going on too. What a surprise. Yeah. Um, so you kind of plant the seed early on that you're going to be in it and on some kind of mission and then you sort of resolve that later. Um, but yes, it was uh, also a way of saying this is a celebration of people. Like I, I found writing this book, I really came to accept myself actually, genuinely, not just for the purpose of the book. <laughs> I genuinely came <laughs> to accept myself because I thought I've always beat myself up about being yeah. impulsive, unprofessional seeming, restless. You know, I call the people in the book natural born leg jigglers, and I'm a massive fidgeter. And I'd always mm. feel like, God, you're so unprofessional, embarrassing. And then everyone in the book had that same kind of restless energy and childlike persona, and they put it to good use. And I thought, well, I think they're awesome. So why wouldn't you think that about yourself? It's really interesting you say that. I've been thinking a lot about, um, I feel like we're at this, this great intersection in time where we're seeing how the sausage is made. We're seeing it's a great, the great and powerful Oz is just some dude behind the curtain. Um, and we're seeing that things like being professional or being of a binary gender or being neuro, not neurodiverse are a freaking scam. And every, all bets are off. All ways of being are now starting to become more widely accepted. Um, yeah, it's a, it's bumpy still. It's a bumpy ride, but um yeah, the leg jigglers are, you guys are the best. It's it's because of you that these stories are, are, are put together. Um, yeah. I, I had a, sorry, go. I was just going to say quite a few people in the book told me that they, uh, they had ADHD, for instance. But I didn't make a huge thing of that because I didn't mm. want it to be where it's like pathologising and yeah. putting people in categories. But um so I mean, if you if you look at it, look at it from that point of view, though, that they do have ADHD, then they found a really great way of mm. working with that. Mm. I kind of I'm really interested to see what happens to the education system over the next decade. Now that 
people in their droves are receiving these diagnoses that mm. indicate the system that they're placed into is not going to serve them and the results or the scores that they get don't really apply because the people who have ADHD or are neurodiverse, there's nothing wrong with them. They just don't, they're just that different shape peg to the, the whole. Um, I more in special ed class now, there's way too many of them. Yeah. Yeah, um, I had a really visceral reaction. Was it Jack, the guy that eats unusual things almost yes, as an art form? Jack Aloka, yes. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't that what he, he was doing disgusted me. Um, I guess, I don't know, in a, in a fairly narcissistic way, I was placing myself in his role and imagining how that would feel. Did you Do you keep your distance or do you identify with the people that you're interviewing or does it depend on? It's hard to identify with Jack because he's a very odd character. Uh, like I find him likable. I mean, I've met him tons of times. Um, I know a lot of people. He's probably the most polarizing character in the book, actually. Yeah. But um, he, so just a bit of context. He's a neuroscientist. Uh, he's in his thirties, and he he also goes on these kind of personal missions where he does things like he takes as many different kinds of psychoactive drugs as possible. He's been eating as many species as possible to discuss, to test his own disgust response and constantly query that. Mm. Um, uh, but he is, he is very unique. So I can't really relate to him. Like he gets paid tens of thousands of dollars just to fly out and give a one hour talk to you know, like, you know, underground networks of CEOs and entrepreneurs. Wow. Like, what can this man teach us about the psychedelic lifestyle? <sighs> Um, so no, he's not relatable. <laughs> I, I certainly didn't judge anyone. I didn't judge him. Mm. I, I'm, not, I'm quite a non-judgmental person. I think he got a history of addiction and yeah. wild. It's going to say crazy, but wild behaviour. You, you, uh, you lose the impetus to judge people. Really, there's no finger pointing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my glass house is full of cracks. I like it that way. Um, there, there was one particular guy, he was talking about COVID and he described um, having a relationship with the virus, levelling up, burning it or living with it or whatever it was that he said, and my hackles just went boom. Yeah. I... <laughs> that is the most questionable part of Jack's interview, mm. I must say. And so he was putting, he got, he's had COVID twice. He's oh had Delta gosh. and the bog standard strain. Mm. And um yeah, he makes video diaries as he's in quarantine in his hotel room, and he do, he can talk about it in quite an arrogant fashion, like you know he's he's walking with the wolf and he's taking the wolf and all this kind of thing. Yeah. Meanwhile, sort of flying around to all these different countries, unvaccinated. So um, mm. that is the most questionable part right at the end of that chapter. Yeah, I th this pandemic it's compressed everyone's core values up to the surface, and they kind of pop out. You know, sometimes I look a bit ugly. Um, before all of this, I thought of myself as as a compassionate person, um, endless respect for people's thoughts. Mm. But that bumps up against will this person's action in, actions endanger me or my yeah. family? And I hulk out, and I am furious at the moment a lot more than I yeah. care to admit. Um, this is going to settle in a place where you are generally after this is all over. Mm. a bit more you know standing up for your own sort of rights yeah. yet still being compassionate but also less likely to deal with people's shit if it's less doormatty yeah, yeah I, I I read a similar account to 
how he described COVID. A friend's sister on, on Facebook had COVID and she wrote, it was quite a beautiful description. She welcomed the virus. She made friends with it in her body and her consciousness. She treated it with black pepper massages and sunlight. And, you know, it sounded like a health retreat. <laughs> um, but she too described levelling up and no part of me felt moved to ridicule or judge her harshly for sharing what's real for her. And I see the hypocrisy in that. And I don't know, I, I mean, you, you talk about that you and the respect that you have for the people you're interviewing comes through. But I wonder, do you ever have to keep a bit of a poker face and not look <laughs> like freaked out by what they're saying? Nothing freaks me out. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm eyebrow raised when <laughs> I got to Jack's COVID stuff and watched his videos. But yeah. apart from that, uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got a pretty high disgust tolerance, or do I mean low? High, mm. I've got high disgust tolerance. And uh, I understand why people would do things that cause them physical pain, you know, for, for an adrenaline release and all that kind of thing. So not, nothing, no, I really got these people, these people. Yeah these people yeah it's it's clear that the respect and the warmth that you have for your subjects they're all go hard or go home and their craft and their expression whether it be mm. fighting wrestling pro dom in a bdsm context porn ballet all of these art forms and they are all art forms they have so many common threads throughout and there's a lot of breaking down of identity and springing up from rock bottom mm. and finding a more powerful way forward not necessarily a safe way forward but it is coming from a place of strength. You, you said earlier that you have come to accept yourself by working on this book. Is, have you been changed in any other ways, do you think? When I initially had my fight, which I've been working up to for about two and a half years, mm. I thought to myself naively, nothing will ever scare me again. Um, like you know, I've been knocked and over. And then we met for breakfast, and you were like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was incorrect." I thought, "God, if you literally get through the ropes and do this yeah. and do anything, it wore off super quickly." In fact, it wore off. It showed me how fragile I am when this woman who um, ran the gym that I was training at, I found out that she'd been sort of bitching about me. Mm. Um, and going, oh, she's got no talent to like the staff and stuff like this. And when I found that out, all my sort of pride in my work for the past two years just went poof and disappeared. Mm. And I was like, wow, that didn't take much. Holy shit. Mm. <laughs> there is still work to be done. And I think a lot of the people in the book probably have that kind of sensitivity to criticism as well for all sorts of reasons. So it is this constant then game of trying to chase things that make you feel proud about yourself and then. Mm. But also you're putting yourself on the line in terms of public humiliation, like whether it's porn or getting in the ring, you are literally risk running the risk that you will completely humiliate yourself. And I think there's some kind of addiction to that aspect as well. Yeah. Arms way in your underwear. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's really hit a nerve for me too. Oh, like, yeah. in, um, I was interviewed by someone who was a boxer for her podcast, and she said she she was alluding to some kind of childhood trauma. I'm not sure what it was, but she said when she gets in the ring, there's all these people around you. Any one of them could step in and save you, 
but you know they're not going to. And there, even the referee Ooh. isn't going to. There was something that was really familiar, like horribly familiar to her about that. Mm. That was probably why she did it. And I thought, fuck, that's really goosebumpy. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, sorry, that's that's um that's really got got me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that familiarity of of fighting whatever it is you need to fight off. Yeah. On your own. Yeah. Yeah. Even though there are people around, and so you can see, you can imagine what she's mm. alluding to in childhood where people are around but they're not actually going to step in, you know. Mm. Ooh, well, I'm going to change tack now a bit and ask a bit about um, about your life now. You're, you're a writer, a journalist, um, a fighter, but you also teach. Can you tell us a bit about the workshops that you're offering these days? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love teaching, actually. Um, mm. uh, so that I do memoir or first-person workshops and writers groups and one-to-ones and um I always feel a bit awkward because often it's of course it's always really emotional material and people making themselves vulnerable but I'm mm. so practically minded that you know often somebody might be weeping slightly and I'll be like right so I can see if you move that bit down to the bottom so you're bookending with these themes and you know, just going straight into the nuts and bolts but I think people have come to expect that now um mm. one of my participants yesterday said we were discussing that like in a chat sort of behind your back and he said no it's good because Jenny's in the trenches with you you know yeah. she's not going to be like holding your hands and um well done you for showing up today you know there's nothing like that and I know some teachers are like that it's mm. more like right. No, how can how can that be? It's gonna be better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's what people pay for, right? Whereas maybe it's not. Maybe yeah. people do pay to someone to go. Oh, that's terrible, and and literally yeah. pay for that sense of validation. And I hear you. Yeah, it's like shoes. Everyone likes different shoes. <laughs> yeah. People love the tough love. How how can people find you if they would like some? Um, assistance with their writing if they've got a manuscript they're working on and they want some coaching yep it's uh, valentish.net all right. the different services are on there beautiful um can we talk about an average day for you mm-hmm. what's your average day at the moment i know uh, about your whiteboard yeah whiteboard behind <laughs> me um so yeah I, I have a cold shower and then i mark that on the whiteboard <laughs> What does the cold shower do for you? Um, Look, really you have to stay in for at least five minutes in order for it to apparently have some kind of effect for your vagus nerve and um, uh, like prep you for, to be more resilient. I I usually only do a minute, so it's really serving the purpose of slapping you around the face and making Mm. sure you get out of the house quicker than you normally would. Yeah. Um, I usually have a podcast on while I'm getting ready to leave the house, then I go to the cafe and do a bit of writing but not for very long because i'm very cognizant of people's businesses mm. um and then come home and do a bit of uh i, I, I tend to i tend to make like a daily instagram post or video mm. a bit addicted to that and but it's also desperate pr because i've published a book you know the book came out in the middle of the pandemic and all, yeah. all the bookshops were shut so you you can get people going in and browsing Mm. All the arts pages had been cut or reduced. 
Mm. So there, were, there wasn't a single review. Um, <laughs> there, you know, there was a couple Gosh. of exits. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm sort of hustling. I'm, I'm, I spend a few hours a day hustling, I must admit, and then uh, writing for The Guardian and working on the next book, and then I'll go and do some pole dancing. What's your next book? It's about older women and fitness. So basically all sorts of tips to, if, if you want to sort of continue with fitness past 50, say, mm. obviously it becomes a lot more difficult for many, many, many reasons. Um, so I'm talking to people who've really got into things like biohacking and um, epigenetics and um, have managed to preserve their fitness, uh, whether or not they use HRT, or they navigate menopause. Um, so, but also it's based on interesting stories. So people who are just like lovely, well-rounded characters with great tales to tell, but, but also sucking out their secrets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's your thing. And are you are you placing yourself in the narrative as well? Yes, I am. Of course, good. <laughs> well, I would I would hope so. Really, um, launching. How many cancellations have you had to go through for your book launch, my love? It's oh, just one's coming up. As in the fourth attempt. Yes. <laughs> Melbourne. Uh, yeah. At the bowls club i mean the books readings books were originally going to do it but after the fourth go they're like can we just move on to some other people's books now and I'm like, oh. right, right. So, yeah so uh, i'm doing it together with black ink and they're putting a load of money behind the bar and i'll be uh. snags and i'll be interviewing or in conversation with cracker jack the mad bastard the wrestler and probably staple gunning his forehead because that's <laughs> Yeah, I felt that when I when I read that part and shuddered. <laughs> um, yeah, it's mad. Yeah. Like what he does mm. for a living, he does things like um, has baseball bats with cat guy, mm. um, like attached to the baseball bats with barbed wire. <laughs> and then, you know, that's like a, a home cobbled weapon that he will consensually use on whoever he's fighting and they might return the favour with, I don't know, um, rusting tin cans or something <laughs> so uh, yeah it's basically oh. self-harm but in an extremely creative fashion yeah um I just I, I really feel for you Jenny Valentish because I I haven't given birth to a book myself I, have, I haven't given birth to a baby myself but I've watched people do both people I love do both and it is such a huge thing to conceive of and create and then push out this, this thing that's going to change everyone that it will come into contact with. Um, so I, I am crossing everything for launch volume four. Um, what is the date that people can go to go to this? It's November the 30th. November 30th. 6 p.m. at Port Melbourne Bowls Club. All right. I'm going to try and get this online today or tomorrow and wow. do, do some hustling myself yes. on my behalf because it's an absolute bloody brilliant book. Um, speaking of books, what are you reading at the moment? Yeah, I'm reading um, Megan Nolan's Acts of Desperation. She's, uh, it's her debut novel and she's even got a blurb from, is it Nusgaard or Nausgaard? Anyway, 
from him, which is unbelievable. Usually mm. when you get like a cover blurb, it's especially in Australia, it's like the same four authors rotating, giving each other a blurb and it's just yeah. meaningless. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I went into Title Books in Bangaroo in Sydney, mm. which is this beautiful, beautiful bookshop. I just walked past it and oh my God. And I was actually on my, uh, I was in Sydney to promote my book because Sydney was open and Melbourne wasn't. I was like, oh, I'll go in and check they've got my book. And they didn't. But they sold me this one. <laughs> the Act of Desperation is about um, uh, a woman in her 20s who's quite a heavy drinker and is absolutely obsessed with this man she's seeing on and off who's just awful to her, which sounds like a tedious read or one that you've read a billion times before, but it's really, really good. You'd be very mm. surprised it's not made into a film or something like that. Mm. Right. Um, actually, so sorry, that's my book of the year. Oh, okay. That's yeah. your book of the year. Great. Wow, that's a big yeah. call. All right. Yeah. What I'm actually starting to read now is A Body of Work by David Hallberg, who started last year as the artistic director of the Australian Ballet. Oh, yeah. And he was the first American to join the Bolshoi as a principal dancer. Anyway, so this is his memoir. Um, and it's about vicious bullying as a child and then how he became a ballet dancer, which I'm sure helped. Um, and his <laughs> career. And I actually bought it because at one point I thought, okay, I've had a fight. What should I do now? I know I'll do ballet. And <laughs> I, I noticed that the the ballet here in Victoria, Victorian Ballet, had um like classes for adults. And I thought that would be that would be kind of cool to do but of course then the pandemic mm. brought it all to a halt but I was kind of going to read this book as research so that's what I'm starting now. Mm. That's a big chunky one. Um, what's your what's your reading practice like? Do you, do you burn through books pretty quickly? Do you linger on them? Are they audio? Are they um, what's the one in the computer called? Um, Kindle? In a ki Kindle. <laughs> My greatest fear since I was a child that all of my books would disappear into a robot um, and I will not participate. Um, I, I, I spoke to Kaya Wilson and he was saying, oh, I listen to podcasts. I should listen to audiobooks. And you mentioned podcasts as well. What's your, what's your literary diet like? Yeah, it's not as good as it should be, I must admit, because uh, I do listen to podcasts all the time. Um, I do also listen to audiobooks. Um, so, for instance, uh, I have been enjoying. Hang on, this is just apps just loading. <laughs> well, I just reread the Magus, which I hated still, but um, <laughs> just checking. No, I still do. <laughs> Crying in Eight Marks by Michelle Zana. That's that was great. Um, and I tend to only read in the bath, but luckily I'm English, so I do have a bath yeah. every couple of days and showers every day. Of course. So, yeah. you know, I have like 20 minute stints of reading in the bath, but it doesn't, yeah. it's quite a slow process that, isn't it? Mm. I never yeah. sit down for two hours on the couch and read a book, never. When I, when I loaded your audio book and then a British voice spoke to me, I was like, oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know this about you, Jenny. And um, but then it wasn't you. What what's the choice? Um, was it your publisher? Was it you about having another person read your book as an audiobook? No, it was me, because I had little faith in myself and I thought mm -hmm. I wouldn't be very good at this. Um, I'll get a professional to do it because otherwise it will take me like 
five times as long as it should but they did offer and then I really regretted it because when we when the pandemic was raging around my book launch release and I started doing my own readings on Instagram as a way of trying to plug it mm. I thought oh, I'm actually not bad at this and I really enjoy it well bummer I could have read the book so <laughs> Well, um, if you're listening to this podcast and you, you agree that you would also like to hear uh, Jenny Valentish reading passages from Everything Harder Than Everyone Else, are the, the ones that you've done on your Instagram, are they available as, as highlights or are they sort of gone once they've, they've faded from stories? I have to scroll down. They're there. They're videos. They're right. me sitting in bed. I always do them from bed in an intimate fashion. Yeah, <laughs> with a towering pile of books that could kill us all. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much. I really, I really recommend everything harder than everyone else. I, I got so much from reading this book and um, you're also author of Women of Substances and Cherry Bomb. And I'd like to thank you very much for talking with me for Slow Reader. Um, and I hope that with your next book, you record the audio version. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's so much fun. Yeah, yeah it's nice. Really nice to catch up and and chat about yes. books. But um, thank you, Jenny Valentish. Hey, Jasper Peach here. Uh, thanks for tuning in to episode two. I've put both episodes one with Kaya Wilson and two with Jenny Valentish up in quick succession. I really wanted to. Um, make sure this was up just in case it got another bum on a seat at the launch the fourth attempt at the <laughs> melbourne launch for everything harder than everyone else it's happening uh on november 30th and that's uh down in where is that yeah tuesday november 30th 6 p.m sharp at the melbourne bowls port melbourne bowls club um just a short ride from southern cross station if you happen to be here in melbourne or there in melbourne as the case may be Next time, I'll play an interview um, I did with Jacinta Parsons, who you might know from ABC's Radio National. Uh, Jacinta has written a beautiful book called Unseen. Um, it's about chronic illness. It's about um, chronic illness in, in a lot of people. I think Jacinta's been very generous with, with her portrayal because she not only talks about her own story, but weaves in the stories of others. It's a typical, generous, broadcaster kind of fashion. Um, and I look forward to sharing that chat with you next time on Slow Reader. Uh, get in touch if you like on either Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Jasper Peach Says. It would be remiss of me to sign off without saying a big thank you to Monique Bodger uh, for putting together this music just for the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, Monique is... She's a lady with chops, man. She's an incredible musician, um, performer, and just a top person. Really, really beautiful friend. Thanks, Mon. Okay, cheers.